Hello and welcome to the NDA podcast. My name is Justin Pierce and I'm the editor. This is part of our series called NDA Meets, where we get a chance to sit down and discuss in detail some of the biggest trends hitting our industry. And today I'm joined by two people, Ryan Ashfar, he is Head of Publishers UK, and Tim Geenan is MD Addressability Europe at LiveRound. So Ryan, Tim, hi, and thanks for joining us on the NDA podcast. Hello there. Hey, Justin. Nice to be here. So we've got lots to talk about today. First party data, third party data, publisher relationships with advertisers, etc. But let's let's kick off and talk about authenticated first party data. And obviously, this podcast is also based on the research and reports you've published recently. Uh, talked to both marketers and publishers, looking at how how the, how the, the ecosystem is changing. So yeah, let's kick off and. Authenticated first-party data for the uninitiated. What exactly? What exactly are we talking about? Hey, Justin. So uh, let's see. Uh, authenticated first-party data. I think let's break down a few a uh, few pieces there. So first-party data is data generated by the consumer directly. It can only be collected on the brand or on the publisher side. And authenticated in this case means that the user actually, the user, the person, the, the consumer actually logged in to that service or is a newsletter subscriber. Uh, and they've uh, actively shared something like an email address or their phone number with the publisher or with the brand uh, to, to have access to the service or to enjoy some entertainment. It can be for various reasons. How's the authentication process? How's it happening and how's it, how's it changing? How are publishers convincing more consumers to, to, to log in? I think there's like the piece here of the value exchange. Like, is it worth logging in? Is it worth giving your email address to access the content? And I think that's where a lot of publishers are coming up with new ideas. And let's be honest, like they've been trying this for, for over a decade. We've seen hard wells, soft wells, um, a certain limit of, of articles that you can read or certain journalists that you can only read when you are a paying customer. And I think that's also where the challenge was. I think a lot of these models in, in, the, in, in the past have been uh, engineered around driving more subscription-based revenue. I think we're gonna see a new uh, direction there where we're also where publishers uh, will want to collect uh, authenticated first-party data just for the sake of, of, of monetizing it and not just necessarily driving uh, towards a subscription. So that means they're gonna to have to come up with new new carrots, new, you know, it's not just for you guys' description, they have new sort of reward mechanisms, I guess. Yeah, carrot, stick. I'm curious <laughs> which one will be used here, um, but it's going to be interesting to see. And like the funny thing that I always see is like, I'm logged into so many different services and I, I don't even realize anymore that I'm logged in. Like if you look at my Spotify, my SoundCloud, like uh, look at Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, it's just normal that you're logged in there because it, it fits the nature of the service. Okay, that makes sense. So let's, the other side of the cookie coin, I guess you call it, is third-party cookies. And look, third-party cookies talked about incessantly in our industry, but let's just define them again. Because I think sometimes things are talked about so often, the actual, the actual definition starts to, starts to disappear. So third-party cookies, what are they, how they use? Ryan, you want to go or shall I take this one? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. So let's start with third-party cookies. So third-party cookies are little TXT files in your browser, and they have a maximum file size, about four or five kilobytes, which is very, very limited, by the way. For example, if you look at a very modern 
approach like the transparency and consent framework by the IAB, the full consent stream doesn't even fit in that cookie. Like, so there's constraints technologically. There was always a challenge about like, I don't know, like virus scanners or whatever, cleaning up your third party cookies. Uh, so that's a thing. Uh, but what it, what it means is these are third party companies putting a little TXT file on your device uh, for several reasons. Like it could be for certain fraud uh, recognition or detection. Uh, but in the case of what we're talking about, advertising and marketing, very often what is being placed in a cookie is a UID, like a universal, uh, uh, unique universal identifier. Uh, it's a piece of numbers, basically. And that then becomes a referral to other data that exists within the ecosystem. Okay, so the big news, obviously, is that third-party cookies are on the way out with Google's announcement. And other browsers have been blocking third-party cookies for a while now, but Google Chrome sort of dominant market share. So when they announced that they were going to block it, sort of everyone realised that third-party were definitely on the way out. However, they came out recently and gave another couple of years uh, grace before they finally make a move. So let's talk about that and what that's going to do to the market. But also, in the research, which, which you released recently, uh, we found that 78% of UK senior marketers believe that this final withdrawal cookies will have a have a positive impact on the advertising industry, a positive impact on what they can do as brands. So, you know, third-party cookies have been beating forever, but advertisers now think it's a good thing they're going. So what, yeah. what, what did that research tell you? Yeah, I guess we'll sort of break that down. There's a few, a few things to talk about there. I guess to your point, uh, Justin, you know, Cookies have you know have been phased out, have been starting to phase out over the last few years. This is nothing new. You know, you look at Safari and Firefox have already phased out cookies. So, so publishers and brands are already familiar with the world that we're moving to, which is with without cookies, cookies completely. So, you know, Google's announcement, whilst it was might be a surprise to some that they've extended the sort of stay of execution for, for a bit longer, um, it doesn't necessarily change anything, certainly from the publishers that we've been speaking to or the brands. They know that this day is coming, and so why stall it any further? And this, the, strategies, the strategies that they've been working on over the last 18 months, 24 months, are actually going to continue to, to be executed on, and if not accelerated. And so, you know, yeah, it was interesting to see that from the, from the statistics that brands actually are you know, positive about the impact of, of third-party cookies going away. And that's because, you know, look, having, more access, having access to more accurate data is only a good thing. Being able to understand those audiences to a larger degree uh, and prove who those individuals are, rather than looking at signals that you know, let's face it, weren't wasn't wasn't purpose built for what it's actually doing. It's it wasn't serving a purpose. It served a purpose, but it was never intended to be used in such a way. So I think the industry as a whole now are really getting behind looking at other strategies to to kind of target, measure, attribute uh, audiences for campaigns. What do you think there's going to be the impact? Because obviously everyone's been rushing to hit the deadline when the third place could go away. And now with another couple of years grace, are we going to see everyone just sitting back and, and relaxing for a bit and, and not pushing hard enough? As they, doing exactly as you say, Ryan, you know, is there a worry there? Um, I actually, for, for the publishers I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks, I think they're actually frustrated that this has come about. Um, they've put a lot of effort, a lot of planning towards the date that they're originally working towards, which is, you know, March or April next year. And so what they don't want to do is this be an indication to the brands, particularly of like, hey, slow down now, let's carry on buying 
your campaigns on, on cookies. You know, we don't do that live run, but the, the fear is that this is this slows down that process. And I think, you know, if 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 what I'm hearing is true, this, it won't change at all. And, you know, it, it gives some publishers, perhaps those that haven't really figured this out yet, a bit more of a grace period. But those premium publishers and those that we're working with and speaking to, this doesn't change anything. Okay, good. Now, the sort of the strategies that they're looking looking at, we researched, asked, said, look, what are you going to be doing? One of the 45% said they'd be looking at first part, first party authenticated data. So obviously there's a big push for that, but what, what, are, the, what are the barriers in the way? What are the hurdles that have got to be overcome to make that really effective? I think like we need to agree on a few, like how do you transfer first party data? And that's something that we've invested a lot of time and effort in at, at LiveRamp. Uh, like, so first, how do you transmit that data? That's very important. And then on the other side, like, how do you collect it? What do you do with it? How do you categorize it? Uh, how do you create, how do you provide transparency into that data? And that's different for both the brand and the publisher side. So I, I think for every company, there are a few questions that need to be answered. Uh, and let's also be realistic. Data still lives in very disparate silos in, in many cases. Like, very often there's still a server in the uh, in the basement somewhere and it's there's some data on there uh, and, and that data set is very different from another system that's being used like so going through that 360 view of your your either uh, the people that consume content or your customers that kind of like touches with first party authenticated data because like the data needs to be centralized or it needs to be organized first before it becomes effective to use uh, and then back to my previous point, like how do you act, actually the actually use the data? Like, like if you're a brand, you're pretty accustomed to buying media easily. You use a DSP, or you get a login into uh, Facebook, or into some of the Google tools, or into the Amazon like advertising tools. You can upload your data there, and then you can run a, a campaign pretty effectively with very uh, cost-efficient metrics. Now, the rest of the internet needs to figure out, like, how can you recreate that experience? Like, how can you allow for brands using their first-party data and make it very easy, like, very seamlessly at a, at a pretty cost-effective way uh, to, to run their campaigns based on that data? On the publisher side, it's, it's different because you're collecting data from those consumers, but you don't know in, in which cases specifically they're going to be interesting to your brand and, like, what are what's their value? So there are new let's say yield management uh, uh, triggers here that need to be learned. Okay, let's talk a bit, if we can, about the relationship between publishers and advertisers. And obviously that's changing because of all these macro changes. I think what was quite interesting in the research was that, uh, I'm trying to the exact stats here, but advertisers said they were looking for closer relationships with publishers uh, based on the value of the data. So what are you both seeing in terms of how, how that relationship is changing and what, what needs to happen to make that a, a better relationship for both sides? Yeah, well, if, if you look back at, in the history of advertising, brands have always had a very strong relationship with the publishing partners that, that they work with. You know, you only have to look at heritage company, heritage publishers like New York Times or Time Magazine or The Guardian. Um, they have very strong relationships with brands. Um, over the years, in the last 10 years, you know, ad tech has kind of almost help fragment that marketplace and push publishers and, and, and brands arguably further away from each other. Um, and so of course, brands, they like, they want to understand the platforms or the areas of, of, of and sites that they're advertising in and understand as much about those audiences as possible. Um, publishers have forever, their job is to prove to an advertiser that the audiences that they have are their customers. And so if there's an opportunity 
to be able to actually prove that those customers are actually users of their site. That's only a that's only a good thing. And actually, it's quite a powerful tool for publishers to be able to use that and strengthen those brand relationships. You know, a publisher may have been working with an auto brand for 25 years, but if now they can actually say, well, actually, we know that your customers are actually on our sites, that does change the dialogue. And it actually gives publishers another string to their bow about how to engage with that brand, structure long-term partnerships and fulfill those kind of relationships. Yeah. Sorry, Carol. Yeah, sorry. I just and then maybe like look at some new use cases there as well. Like there's a certain case here that I'm, uh, I was reviewing something for for an award show, and what the brand and the publisher did is like they actually looked at their data really, really carefully, and they also looked at the offline component. And what happened there is they decided to create like a print leaflet in a magazine that was right up in their audience group. And like and then there was still an online onboarding process to complete the sale. But they've seen magnificent, uh, magnificent results there. Uh, and that all came from connecting the data between the two parties directly. What sort of new metrics do you think publishers need to deliver? Because again, looking at the research, that was, that was quite a, a big sort of demand of advertisers that in fact, 48% uh, wanted sort of new consumer-centric metrics, engagement-based metrics. So what sort of metrics are we missing? What sort of metrics do you think need to be developed to enable this new world? Well, I think, I guess it comes down to the objective of the campaign, right? If the objective of the campaign is to reach a specific customer of that brand, then of course, part of that metric or measurement needs to be able to prove out that this is one of our customers or, and this is how they engage with the ad for how long, et cetera. But ultimately it needs to be, they, that was a user they were trying to reach. That's a customer that, that we're trying to, to kind of um, engage with. If, it, if the objective of the campaign is, is for more prospecting, well, then obviously that's a different kind of engagement. You get into more of like, well, how, what was the scale of the reach that we had with this campaign? You know, were we engaging with these users through video or any other kind of channel that they were using? But it does really come down to, you know, what the objective of the campaign is. What, you know, our brand clients that we work with, they are obviously, they onboard their data to reach those customers that they're trying to get, you know, um, get hold of. And so that largely has taken place within Walled Gardens. But now there's a huge opportunity for publishers to be able to, engage with those same types of campaigns from those brands and prove out that, yes, our environments are also uh, able to deliver on those campaign objectives. And we're seeing some great results in, in there uh, with retailers here, as in, because you know who your customer is and you know who you were showing an ad, like you can actually connect that to the point of sale. So like a cost per action gets an entire new dimension there because like it's taking into account offline purchase data. That's an interesting point. How, how is... And that's been a hope for a long time, I suppose, the attribution digital yeah. to offline. So what's happening there? What are we going to see? And again, what role do publishers play here? I suppose think of like car magazines or something where it's such high intent consumers go into these places to find out about what they're going to buy in the real world. So what we're going to see here in terms of tying up the on and offline world. And again, how what can publishers do? Yeah, I think it becomes easier for a brand to recognize where actual value is being created. Like, for example, let's take a car uh, a website. Like, let's say I go on CarWow, I do, do my selection. Uh, like, I, I do my review, I educate myself, but then I still go to the dealer and I buy there. Um, that sale is pretty much uh, unknown to, the, to, to all the participants. But what if you can actually connect those data points? Because there is an email address in there. What if you can sync up that data? What if you do know, like, that you can give a greater value to CarWow even or, or on any, any other car website, but, like, um that 
I spent a lot of time there. I spent six hours researching and then I went on to an offline, uh, like to a physical location and I bought something there. To give credit in this system becomes so much easier than the way we're giving credit right now. Okay. What about, what about the actual relationships? Again, something that sort of fascinates me because back in the old days, people would have relationships, publishers, they go out for lunch together, they shake hands and the rise of the, the programmatic ecosystem, I guess, stop that happening that, that didn't need to come as much as it once did so we're going to see the actual sort of physical relationships between publisher and advertisers change what do you what do you see in there well yeah that's where you're right go for it <clears throat> yeah i i'd say that hasn't changed i think that's still continued in throughout the kind of uh, the ad tech era i guess brands have become much more interested and have taken a vested interest in what ad tech is which partners they the publishers may be using which partners they are using through their agency and DSP uh, partnerships. So it goes without saying, I think the, the, the role of the CMO has changed now. And so with, along with understanding which ad tech vendors are provide, providing value within that kind of value chain, um, also getting closer to the programmatic size of the business at the publishers. I think, you know, those brands would don't want to have that relationship, not just with the, the CEO of a publisher, but understanding how you know, trading works or how the execution of, of programmatic campaigns is, is actually working. So I think that continues. I think, as, as I said before, I think understanding the audiences of those publishers, knowing that if their customers exist within those sites, it provides a strengthening kind of relationship with, the, with that publisher to kind of expand on existing models. And then, sorry, Tim. No, sorry, I just, just want to say, I see some new technologies emerging there as well. Like, Actual like sales automation, uh, like conversational uh, chatbots that can also be applied to advertising and marketing. So platforms where publishers can pretty much present their shoppable meeting and where the conversation happens in a digital environment. Like So I think that entire process is becoming more and more digital, more and more automated uh, in a way that doesn't involve the media. It's just about having the conversation and uh, setting the deal. And then I think like a bit more down the line, even like if you look at the concept of the clean roads and if you look at life ramp safe haven, we're actually able to provide insights without moving the data. Like that's an interesting concept. With cookies, you were never able to discuss about the actual audience because you don't know them. They live locally in browsers. But if you take that experience into a different environment and you can talk about the insights and, and like the applications on that data without moving the, for the, the actual personal data, it becomes really interesting. Tell me a bit more about that. How does that even without the personal data? Surely you're lacking personal data. So you're lacking, then you're lacking more detail. Does that make it harder? No, no because like, don't forget how poor visibility everyone had into third-party cookies because they kept disappearing, right? So like, it wasn't uncommon that 50% of your cookies would disappear day over day. So you're basically just trying to set a new cookie, trying to recognize, trying to relearn again. So you were never talking about true audience insights. It's like best guesses, estimates uh, at best. But when you can talk about data where you know that there's a connection because it's first party, like people have declared it, you can actually make a match between the two data sets. Now, now you can also talk about the data. Now you can also start working at a different abstraction level as in the data is there, we know how much matches. Now let's talk about setting a deal. Publisher A, I have 35% overlap with your CRM audience from brand X. Like this becomes an interesting discussion. So do you think third-party cookies have made, made people lazy or made markets just over-reliant generally? Yeah, absolutely. And that's also like, we speak very often about how flawed third-party cookies were. And like, I've, I've done programmatic for, for, for a decade. Like when you do actual campaigns, 
you will encounter many, many problems. Like, and you just start filling in the gaps because like you have enough data to make better assumptions, but there's still assumptions. What are the biggest problems that you encounter? Sorry? You said you encounter many problems. Oh, yeah, the, the, the fact that they keep disappearing. So it's like the, the cookie lifespan is much shorter. And now also the, the example that I gave more recently, like it actually break third-party cookies break consent strings. I'll give you a funny example, like Google is vendor, I don't know, I think number 700 uh, within the IV transparency and consent framework, uh, but the cookie breaks after 600 vendors, depending on your configuration. But this would be an example that actually a publisher cannot transmit a consent signal that is complete. And so all the vendors that have higher uh, register numbers are just not included in the request. Okay. Just a bit of a side note, the consent framework, and how, how well is that going, do you think? How well are uh, is the IEB, the industry, and publishers themselves uh, are making consent just better? Because obviously there's lots of problems we all know, and then we all, we all see these just click here for yes, and it doesn't really work. So how's, how's that improving? Well, I recently became an IAB Europe board member and I've been uh, using and endorsing the framework uh, ever since its inception. So I'm a, I'm a huge proponent as in, I think IAB Europe did a wonderful job. Uh, they have done something that was absolutely necessary. Can it be done better? hundred percent. And that's why it will keep evolving. We will have several iterations and new versions and we will keep adjusting. But um, but the, the fact that people just click yes and they don't really read, like th th that is a challenge. Like it's very hard. Look, TCF is a direct translation of GDPR onto a digital experience. And well, that is not great. Like from a user experience perspective, it's just not great. Uh, but so what, what can we do better? We can create icons, like we can make it really easy, but I don't really think that solves for the consumer challenge. So I, I think there's a lot still to learn there. Okay, now let's go back to the search gigs. This is this macroeconomics is all very important, but it comes down to cash. And the research found that marketers said they they'd be willing to pay more for media and identity data. So there's a lot of third party cookies. It could also result in more money coming into the market if if marketers are prepared to pay more. What, what did that what did that finding say to you? And what? Sorry, Ryan, go for it. I mean, it's um, it's to be expected, right? I, I you know, if 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 a marketer is wasting less of their budget, then clearly they're going to they're willing to pay more to reach the the right audience and, and not have that budget wasted. I think you know, publishers seeing is obviously a huge opportunity. We've we've already seen some of our publisher partners increase yield on inventory of almost three hundred and fifty percent. So I think it's great for both sides. Marketers, you know, even from our research, I said like. 15%, they're willing to pay at least 15% more, but we anticipate it could even be higher. Again, again, depending on the objective of the campaign, how hard it is to reach those audiences. Um, so both publishers win and, and the marketers win. So I don't, I, you know, I, I don't see this as a, as a, as a problem, as a huge opportunity. 350% increase in yield, it, it, that's a huge figure. So how where does that, did that come from? I mean, that, that, that's specifically on uh, Safari and Firefox inventory, which, you know, as we know, publishers aren't really able to monetize. They're kind of like invisible impressions because they don't have visibility on who that audience is. So that's, that's an increase on that type of inventory. When, it, when you look at Chrome, we're seeing 40% increase on, 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 on uh, CPMs as well. So on the whole, obviously, obviously using overlaying data onto that inventory, we're gonna, we're gonna, the publishers are going to see an increase in, in that yield. 
So now what about scale? Uh, there's also, I've often talked about this limited scale that comes to authenticated first-party data, because I guess it's, it's the best, so it's going to be, be rarer. So surely there is an issue with scale here, especially for an industry that's grown up with programmatic in such huge amounts of scale, unimaginable scale. Yeah, well, I mean, I, the question and then becomes really like, like, what is the actual scale? Because like with cookies, it's very often it becomes a tricky conversation. Like, how many people are real? Like, that's a question every campaign. And fortunately, there are really good tools like how to identify how to identify that. But I think the scale issue is is real at the moment. And when I talk to publishers, I think it's very high on the agenda for most of them. Like, how can we create more of it? Because the the, the competition here for the advertising pound, euro, or dollar is very much with a Facebook and a Google. It's not so much uh, to, to other publishers. And within Facebook and Google, there are huge authenticated audiences present. Again, like they're easy to buy. And I think publishers are trying to find out ways to increase the skill on their side because that's where they're taking the ad, uh, the ad budgets away from. Ryan, what are you seeing here in this issue of scale? Is, is there a worry when it comes to this sort of data? Well, I think, again, it's what are you comparing it to? If you're, if you're trying to replace the cookie, uh, which we shouldn't be, and I think there's an agreement across the industry that that's not the right approach, there isn't a silver bullet solution to, to like for like replace the scale of, of the cookie, which was, which was not fit for purpose. So I think it comes down to, you know, we at LiveRamp, we don't have a universal ID solution. We don't go to the market saying, here's your holistic solution to all your problems when it comes to cookies. You know, we have a very specific use case. We have brands that are buying uh, media, use, onboarding their data and using our tech to buy their audiences. And I guess, you know, if, if a publisher has, if we, if a publisher has 25 to 30% authentications, that's a really good place to be. Um, if they have one, 2%, 3%, you know, which is what we're seeing with publishers at the moment, that's still great. That's still, a, that's still 3% of inventory that you're not maximizing yield on. So start, start with what you have. And we will obviously work, we work with publishers on how to develop those authentication strategies. So it's, it's, it's stop comparing it to cookies because that's where the, for me, that's where the scale argument comes in. Um, should a publisher adopt, adopt other strategies? Absolutely. Should they have a contextual strategy? Yes, they should. Um, it, it, there isn't going to be this silver bullet where we can just completely get rid of cookies and have something that, that replaces that directly. Essentially, you said that 25 to 30% great, 1% still sort of okay. So how are we going to get to our benchmarks in terms of, you know, attributable traffic and, and what, what is the gold standard and what should publishers be aiming for? Will that be coming in soon, do you think? Because I guess a lot of publishers are still totally unsure about what is a gold standard for the amount of authentication. I think that's especially true in, in, in Europe. And I think in the US, we're trying to set a gold standard of 30%. I don't think that's achievable uh, anytime soon in Europe, but I think we need to figure out our own golden standard and maybe the IAB can help here. Uh, like, yeah. What's your sense, both of you? It's just interesting that 30% gold standard in the US, but Timmy was saying that's not achievable here. So when will it be? There must be, you must have some sort of aim for by, you know, Q2 next year, Q2 next year. I think advertisers and publishers need some sort of, yeah, I think twenty to 25%. I think it really does depend on the publisher, right? If you look at um, if you look at what broadcasters have done here in the UK over the last five, six years, they've done a great job of building out their authenications and, and logged in users. And they, there was a very, a very clear value exchange 
to the user of like, hey, you know, you want a personalized approach, you want recommendation engine, you want access to content, you need to register. And, and the broadcasts have done that really well. Now, we look, as you look beyond broadcasts into other publishers, it depends on their strategy. It depends on how their editorial teams feel about authentication. It depends on, you know, okay, as we move towards cookie-less, what's the kind of average uh, revenue per page? You know, do you, does, the, does that publisher feel comfortable with increasing ad load and accepting a you know, reduction in, in revenues? Or are they willing to kind of put some sort of metered access to content or ask for, for an email address? It, it really does depend on, on that publisher. Some are more comfortable than others. Um, and I guess there isn't, yeah, we, there isn't a gold standard, as Tim said, yet. But we need to establish that, I think, for our markets in here, in, here in Europe. You mentioned page labor. So what sort of technical hurdles are there for publishers at the moment? Because publishers don't have, arguably, the, the largest budgets in the world and they can continue to add to their tech stack. And these huge macro changes obviously mean I guess, huge changes in their tech stack, tech stack. So what are the hurdles for, for publishers that they try and get on board with the cookie-less future? I think that depends on whether they already have a, a form of collection set up. I think that's the uh, arguably the hardest part here, technologically. If you look at it from a lifetime perspective, it's a pretty lightweight integration. Like it's a piece of JavaScript or in addition to the SDK on mobile. That's not where the challenge is, actually. Uh, but yeah, it does need to be planned for. Like you're adding a piece of uh, code to your website or to your app. So there is some uh, work to be done. But again, the biggest technological challenge is really at the beginning. Like how do you collect data? Like how, how do the user flows look? Uh, how, how do these funnels look? Like that's challenging. I know you I mean, how is that improving or getting better in terms of the flows and how you collect data? So I guess you must have seen huge changes over the last few years in terms of how publishers are doing this. So what's your sense of how the industry is getting better at this? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it, to, to Tim's point, it doesn't always have to mean a huge you know, back-end technology change. You know, if you know, publishers actually, those who have newsletter strategy are benefiting in that way. So um, it doesn't always have to mean a registration wall and a huge uplift to, to the tech stack. But uh, to Tim's point, you know, publishers are, ex publishers are experimenting right now. It is a very much a test and learn phase. What works, what doesn't work, what the, what the teams, internal teams are comfortable with, editorial, et cetera. But it's, it's a really a combined effort, I think, within each publisher and how they approach that. To your point there, Justin, you know, I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot from publishers that they're they're interested in building out their own tech stack. And this is kind of revisiting 10 years ago, but actually now they're, they're a lot more quick, a lot more experienced talent within those organizations. And they're starting to do that themselves. Hearst actually did that, right? They built their own registration solution. Yeah. So what about editorial? I mean, you both mentioned it a couple of times. And I think just especially from my point of view, you know, it's interesting hearing you mention editorial so strongly in terms of sort of technology discussion. Obviously, that the editorial team wish viewpoint can get quite ignored. So why do you both bring that up as, a, as an important consideration? And the reason I brought it up is because it comes down to user experience, right? So editor, when I work publisher side, yeah, anytime there was a new ad unit that we wanted to, to kind of help try and monetize, we'd have to get editorial sign-off. You know, I bet back in the days when pop-ups were first there, you know, edit our editorial team at time were like, absolutely nowhere we're having this on the site. Then it comes down to commercial argument of, okay, well, this is how much revenue it can bring. So if we're asking users to register, if we're asking users to do something else on the site, that, that editorial do have a say in that because if, they, if it reduces audience size or has any impact on that user experience, I think, and, and this is what's really interesting about this whole conversation is it, it's not like, 
you know, GDPR, where you could just put it into the legal team and they could sign off on, you know, privacy compliance strategy. You know, how, 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 how publishers grow their first party data, how they engage with those audiences really touches on many different departments within that organization. And that's what we're seeing. We, we, have it, we actually work very closely with a number of publishers across throughout the organization to, on how to develop this authentication strategy. It is a commercial outfit, yes, but also when it's benefiting the publisher, having that relationship with the audiences, having a better understanding of who they are um, is not just the commercial uh, uh, decision. This helps, helps, helps about a better, more targeted, more personalized content, which is what, what Winslow's editorial team is wanting to do. And let, let's finish up and talk about, as you very kindly haven't have, uh, talked much about live round itself so let's talk about ATS and what it does how it fits and how it actually works so what is ATS to start with I'll take that one <laughs> uh, ATS... you both seem to stun the silence with your own <laughs> <laughs> um, ATS uh, is our authenticated traffic solution um, and very simply what it does is allows publishers to create a first party identifier in this case a ramp ID which sits in their first party storage. Um, this then allows them to marry up with the same ramp ID that we're creating with our brand partners. So we at LiveRamp, we work with brands um, and our kind of cost modeling is all built into the brand side. So brands onboard their data, they create a ramp ID using our identity graph and they try to find those users within, within the, the, the open web and across wall gardens, but it's all publisher sites. So obviously a publisher having the same identifier within their first party storage, just simply allows us to connect the pipes. We allow brands to reach their customers using Ramp ID and publishers that have that Ramp ID can actually tap into that demand. So it's, a, it's an incremental revenue stream for, for publishers. It produces addressable reach for brands. Um, and Asset Live Ramp, we kind of work with all the, 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 the ad tech vendors between to help facilitate that and allow those two, those, those two entities to connect and kind of trade audiences. Brands to find their audiences, publishers to monetize their, their their data and their audiences. And if I may add, like I think in 2017 there was a first uh, initiative of the Advertising ID Consortium. It was kind of like the same thing. Like, can we organize an ecosystem that is less depending on third-party routing of data? And we kind of took those learnings and we developed ATS into an infrastructure that did things very differently. We made a very in innovative approach, really, where we're hashing and we're encrypting. So basically the only participants in the ecosystem that can actually see the data is either a publisher or a brand, and they should be able to connect. And the entire middle layer of ad tech, they don't see the actual data point. They don't see an actual email address. They just get a pseudo-anonymized version of it that we've encrypted and hashed. So thank you so much, both of you. Let's, let's end by getting your predictions for rest of the year we're coming to sort of midway point of the year and things are definitely changing we had mad fest last week which was the first in-person event it was it was full of publishers it was full of advertisers so people would come together in the real world so what are your what are your predictions or not many predictions but what are your real hopes and fears for the next six months the world has changed so much and continues to change but in the world you inhabit in terms of publishers and advertisers and the, the closing relationship between the two what are your biggest hopes and fears for the next six months Ryan? Um, I would say my hopes are that um, publishers really lean into developing their first party data strategy. They have been already, but I think there's a lot, there's a lot more work to be done, I think. And, and for publishers to understand that actually the opportunity here is to really um, start to compete 
uh, with, with Google and Facebook for budgets, but also in terms of the way they set themselves up and make it easy for brands to buy their inventory. Um, I hope that there's more collaboration. We really see a lot of collaboration within the UK market between publishers, um, but I think that will only continue. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I hope that, you know, the recent announcement with, from Google doesn't slow down what's already happening um, in, in terms of brands wanting to buy, uh, use data, first party data to buy their, their audiences and equally publishers continue to, to, to kind of think about how they, how they engage with those brands using their first party data strategies. Thanks, Tim, before I come to you, on collaboration. I uh, hosted an event week for last, immediate media services with publishers and tech companies. Collaboration was really high on the agenda there. So you say you want to see more collaboration. What sort of thing are you, are you talking about here? What, what do you want to see? How granularly do you want to see that work? Yeah, I think um, collaboration amongst publishers is already happening with the likes of, you know, Ozone in the UK and a lot of other consortiums across Europe. But yeah, sharing of learnings, um, I think understanding what the, the benefits are, education in the market, you know, I think when I talk about collaboration also is that, you know, is it, it's, it's challenging in the, in, the, in, the, in the market for publishers at the moment, understanding what all the different vendors do, what should there be, what their ID strategy should be. So I think um, once we start to see at least some, you know, some case studies that's coming out, um, show the proof points that it's working, um, that kind of collaboration will happen and, and help 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 publishers help each other, but also between the brands and agencies as well. I think that's we touched on a lot on this on this call, but you know we really see that happening more and more um, with the, with those kind of late relationships. Perfect, thank you. To move to you, what are your hopes and indeed fears if you have them for the next? The next oh, I always have both. <laughs> hopes is that we keep going on. Like there's not a every new solution every new innovation is like has privacy deeply embedded into it like that that's something that we didn't see five six years ago it's not something we see so 10 years ago and even behind the marketing fluff and everything like if you start looking at the solutions and the product like we're coming up like the industry is coming up with some clever things i'm really hopeful that that will continue the way it is i'm actually quite positive in the way that I think that we, we can actually solve for digital advertising, like with targeting and measurement and do it in a privacy uh, uh, sensitive and, and privacy right way. On the fear side, like, and, and this is mainly driven by some of the conversations I've had with publishers, there seems to be a general lack of um, faith in, in content, as in like publishers seem to be underestimating their ability to drive subscriptions or to drive authentications. And I very often don't really see why that is. And, and like, I'm an outsider, so I, I don't work at the publisher. But that worried me a bit when I, when I started learning, when I started hearing about that a bit more. And I think like most publishers should just keep going there and like trying to drive authentications, try to, like you need to have your readers close to you. Like that was always a good thing. So, but that, that gave me a bit of, uh, that made me fearsome, yeah. But yeah, that's quite a shocking thing to hear because publishers, they are content. That's all they are, essentially. So not having any faith in it. Kind of a... Maybe we were talking to the wrong people and the advertising departments or like, yeah, but in, in general, like people seem to think like content, like they will find it anyway, whether through social to search or whatever. And then they don't want to authenticate or don't want to sign up or they just leave the page. It feels like there's an abundance of content. But on the other side, the opposite is true. Like I, I, I pay for real content, like for good content. I, I'm more than willing to subscribe. Like, uh, and I, I think there's a trend on that side as well. Like uh, good content, it's really easy to drive authentications and subscriptions for it. 
that's a nice third on which, which to end. Good content, easy to drive communication. So what publishers want to hear. So thank you both so much. That was absolutely fascinating. And hopefully lots and lots of good times ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.